Well, good evening. It's good to be with you. It's good to have you here, uh, and, and I'm really delighted to be able to uh, open up God's Word this evening and, and, uh, and really kind of walk through what I think is, is going to be uh, something that's going to be reviewed for every single one of us probably, but I do think that it's going to be super helpful, and I'll tell you why in just a little bit. But before we get there, let's do a little bit of review on where we've been. Sunday night. Talked about glorifying God and missed a difficult life context. Remember that? Instead of praying for getting out of things, uh, instead of praying, sorry, I'm chewing on something. Instead of praying to escape our circumstances, I don't like this person, I don't like this situation, I just wish this would go away. Consider how we can develop perseverance and endurance in the midst of situations to give God glory. And by giving God glory, what do we mean? Accurately displaying His character. Being people that, that reflect the character of God in an accurate manner for other people uh, to see. And, and, and it comes from our heart, not just from uh, put-on actions. And then on Monday night, we talked about releasing resentments and anger over past events, whether we cause them, which happens a lot, right, or, or someone else has, uh, trying to be a more gracious and forgiving, uh, having a more gracious and forgiving perspective on life, we, we recognize that releasing these kinds of things takes time. It took, uh, it took Joseph 12, 13 years to move from where he was to where he was serving Pharaoh and giving all of the glory to God. Nolan, next slide, thanks. And we discussed a more biblically accurate practice of being unoffendable. That's a book by Brant Hansen I would recommend to you, very funny. Uh, releasing our right even our right to get angry, uh, even, even our right to harbor things against other people and resentments, initiating a more flourishing view of ourselves as being the characters in God's story rather than God being just a part of our story. Put differently, it's not all about us. It's really mostly about Him. Next slide. Okay, last night we read a lot of Scripture, did we not? We just, we mowed through so much scripture. We did that as background uh, on the story of Esther. We learned about the nomadic Amalekites, God's judgment against them for not fearing them, uh, picking off the slow-moving Israelites. We also read about Israel's King Saul, tall, handsome man, right, head and shoulders above everybody else, but would not follow God's commands. Why? Because he wanted to listen to the people. He wanted to listen to the people instead of God, and in so doing, he lost God's favor and his blessing because he would not listen to God's voice for God's people. Samuel, God's high priest, killed King Agag of the Amalekites. Now, you got to remember that, right? The Amalekites are the people, but Agag is the king, and the people that followed Agag are called what? Agagites, right? And so Haman is an Agagite, uh, and so he's a follower of that king. Uh, all of that, just background, explain why Mordecai, a Benjamite, remember Saul's Benjamite, and Haman and Agagite were such bitter enemies. And why Haman, the Agagite, wanted to kill Mordecai and avenge the people because of what Saul had done earlier in history. And so he was going to not only kill Mordecai, he's going to wipe out all the Jews. He saw the opportunity because he was second in command. Now, look at this. He wanted to kill all the Jews and all the kingdom of Persia. Take a look at this map, I'm hoping. This is, now I know that you cannot... Like, I know you can't make all this out, so I'm, not, I'm just trying to give you a picture. So I'm going to have you, uh, Nolan, slide to the next slide just real quick. 
here's the modern day area that we're talking about. So if we were to put, there's a little town called uh, Shushan that is right here, and that is right next to the, the tell, which a uh, tell is just one of those raised areas that they're digging, doing archaeology, archaeological digs, um, and they're, they're digging Susa out from the, all the civilization that has been built on top of it. And so that's, it's right about here, and then, and then the, other, the other palace that they went to in the summertime was further north, right above where Tehran is now. But all of the area that we're looking at, when we say Persia, that's modern-day Iran. Now, go back one slide. Look at the vast empire that Xerxes controlled. Xerxes controlled all of the covered, all of the colored areas, whether it, no matter what color it is. This is just showing how the, the kingdom developed over time. But I mean, you've got, you've got areas down here that are getting close to India. This is all like Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and all those other places. And, and then all the way over here, he was extending into the Grecian islands. This is uh, modern-day Turkey and Istanbul. Uh, this is Egypt, right? Here's the peninsula where the Israelites, you know, wandered for 40 years. This is Israel right here. Look at, I mean, look at the size of this kingdom. Haman, go ahead and go to that next slide. Haman sent letters to all of those areas so the Jews would be killed on a very specific day. Wow. He was one seriously homicidal, genocidal guy. And so, next slide. We read Esther's amazing story. I got to witness Esther transform from being invisible, behind the scenes, just gets thrust into the harem. She becomes this kind of hidden queen of Persia. She's the queen of Persia, but she's hiding who she really is. At Mordecai's request, to the defining moment of her life, she finds her voice for such a time as this, and we talked about every one of us, every single one of us are in a place that God has placed us, even if you thought that it had to do just with you, <laughs> even if you thought you've made all the decisions in your life and you've made all the money in your life and you've done all the stuff in your life, God has been directing your path to lead you to the place that you are at in your life, even into this place here tonight. And so for such a time as this, what is that for you? What does that look like in my life? What is it that God has us in this moment for, for his people, for his kingdom? Remember, we're the character in, in his story. He's not the character in ours. He's not the character that we catch up with because we get real busy and we, get, you know, we decide just to glaze over our time with him. Um, Esther says that if I die going to the king, I die. She's willing to die in order to save a people who have now become her own. She spectacularly transforms from fear and insecurity into a strong and godly woman. She confronts Haman's evil plan, and King Ahasuerus has Haman executed and hung on a 75-foot pike out so that everybody can see, don't mess with the queen. The growth we witness is also our call uh, to a strategic, faith-filled risk, intentionally sacrificing, participating in fasting and prayer, when appropriate, with fellow Christ followers, trusting God for his good results. All right. Is that it, Nolan? Do I have a blank slide now? Fantastic. So, what this has caused me to think of as I've gone through Esther and I've preached through Esther and I've uh, considered um, the, the content that's in the book of Esther, it is, it's caused me 
to come back and say, you know, uh, Mordecai didn't have, didn't have to die, right? And, and Esther was willing to die, but, but she didn't have to die. Haman ends up getting killed. He dies because he's an evil person. But if we go forward just 400 years, Jesus Christ is born, right? This is, this is close to the end of the period after the exile. And so you move forward 400, uh, 450 years, and you are going to be right smack dab at, at the time of Christ. So I challenged you last night to maybe think about who you relate to in the story. It's easy, it's easy to be Mordecai, right? Like if we were doing, if we were doing the big youth uh, opener, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't champion Haman. We're, we're not going to champion Haman. We're going to champion Mordecai. We're going to champion Esther. We're going to make sure she looks good, dances well, makes a good scene for everybody. Well, we want everybody to connect with Mordecai and Esther. But like so often when we were children, uh, did, you ever go, <laughs> did you ever go to like Sunday school and they would say something like, look at Samson and how strong he is. Do you want to be strong in the Lord? You should be like Samson. Don't ever be like Samson. Have you actually read that story? That guy was a waste of human space for the most part until the last second of his life. I mean, Samson is a disaster. But I can remember wanting to be strong like Samson as a little boy because that's, that's kind of how I was taught. I was taught that the characters that were in the Bible are, were supposed to copy them. You're supposed to copy Jesus. We're supposed to imitate not the person but the, the way that they submit to the Lord, the, the way that they live their life unto the Lord. So it makes me think, what's this story about Esther? What's it pointing toward? And I believe that it points toward a time when God is going to take all people, the Amalekites, the Agagites, uh, the, the Jews, uh, all of the Gentile world, and, and under one banner, he brings everything together so that situations like we see in Esther don't continue, so that we could have the opportunity to be able to share about what Jesus has done and to do so in a way that, that says we don't have to be separated anymore over, over uh, nationality. We don't have to be separated over based on where you grew up or the color of your skin or what your gender is, right? There's no, there's no male or female. There's no, all, all those different separations. Uh, I, I, I always think of uh, him saying, you know, there's no barbarians uh, in, anymore and, and that, that that was Paul's heart. Like he wanted to take the message in Romans to the barbarians and he had to, he had to spend all of his time in Romans convincing them, convincing them that the message that he had was worth taking to them and, and telling them, just because you know Jesus doesn't make you anything any more special than anyone else who is. Everybody's a sinner, and everybody needs Jesus, and everybody's on the same level. So you Greeks and you Romans, dial it down. Don't think of yourself as being something more than you are. And then he then he pleads with them to give money so that he can go up and he can minister to this, what, what the, Jew, what the uh, Greeks and the Romans called the barbarian horde. So it makes me back up a little bit and say, what's, what's the goal here? Is the goal going to be what happens later in the book of Esther? Is the goal going to be to go out and kill all of our enemies? No. 
That's not actually the goal. Jonah thinks that's a good goal, doesn't he? <laughs> he thinks that's an awesome idea. He's, he just wants the Assyrians to be killed because they've tortured the Jews for centuries. And so he just wants to see them dead. He runs away. The fish gets him. He spits him up back on land. He ends up going over to Nineveh anyway. And, and then he preaches the word, and he is so angry, so angry at God when he forgives the people. And he says to him, I knew you would do this. We live in a different generation, don't we? It's just weird to think of a prophet of God being so angry that people fell in love with God. Why is that? Because the Jews, we know, had gotten very narrow in who they felt like deserved salvation. They didn't feel like they were a blessing to other nations. They felt like other nations just picked on them. I can understand that based on how they were treated, but they couldn't let it go. Like a lot of us, having a hard time letting go of resentments, letting go of anger. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't step into their insecurities the way that Esther learned how to do and, and devote themselves to God no matter the outcome. They wanted to be all shiny and polished up before they did something just to make sure that it would go right. The message of the Bible is, I'll take you as you are, and I'll make you into who I need you to be. And so, tonight, I just want to, I want to go over what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's it. I just want to go over that. And the reason that I want to go over that is because I believe that when you go over this material that we're going to talk about tonight, that I, I believe that it will encourage you, and I think it'll encourage you because the Bible says that we're supposed to, you know when it says we're supposed to work out our salvation, like you are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. You, you understand the, the, the past, the, the present, and the not yet to come. Um, and so the Bible speaks of this all the time. And so if we are to work out our salvation, what does that remind you of? What does that remind you of? It probably reminds you of coming to Christ, right? Salvation, the day that you were saved. What happened? What happened to you on the day that you were saved? Anybody can answer this. This is a small enough group. We can, we can just let you go. Just slip up your hand so I don't have 12 people yelling at me at once. Yeah, what happened? Okay, so you received the Holy Spirit, the seal of your salvation. That's what the Bible says, right? And so the Holy Spirit comes into your life. Um, what, what happens to the person? What else? It's good. It's good. Let's build. Let's build a little bit. Yes. You're made new, right? That's what it says in uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, probably both. But uh, it says uh, you, you are made into a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Uh, you are transformed. Uh, you are, bingo, born again, John chapter 3, right? We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, tonight, you are, you are a completely different person. So what, what were you before? Say again. You were in Adam, right. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be in Adam? Guilty, right. Enemy, good. Godless, yes. A barbarian, perhaps. <laughs> a sinner. A sinner who is uh, very, his very nature is spiritually dead. 
you, you have no life to you. So here, here, here are a series of questions. Start me off here. What moral condition does God require of his people? If you're a sinner and you're dead, um, what's the moral condition that God requires? Like what is he? Yeah, that, I'll shut up. Holy, very good. Let's put it up there. Holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 11, 44 to 45, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves. Consecrate means to separate yourselves from something. So consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. What does the word holy mean? Pause right there. Go back to the, the slide right before. What does the word holy mean? Set apart. Okay, so consecrate, holy, uh, and sanctified, all very similar words in the Bible, and they all mean to be set apart. What else? There's, there's a bit more to it, like set apart. Keep going. Obe- who said obedient? Sorry. Okay, obedient. So set apart from then disobedience, right? For obedience. So what are you set apart from? If you're consecrated, if you're holy, if you're sanctified. What are you set apart from? Good. The world. Um, and the world in this sense is the world that, that is um, against God. The, the sinful world, right? This isn't just the big blue marble, like you, you can't walk around on the earth. Um, this, this means I'm set apart from the things that are not of God. And what are you set apart to? Good works, very good, and, and I'll get, we'll, we'll get to that. You, you're jumping ahead. You need to slow down. No, I'm just playing. Um, what, what, uh, okay, salvation is the process of being set apart, right? So salvation happens, and then consecration, sanctification, all these kinds of separate, separate from one thing kind of words occur. But what, if I were to ask you what it means to be holy, what it means to be sanctified, what it means to be consecrated, Set apart is an aspect of the answer. What's the completion? You're set apart from the world for okay, fellowship with God. Very good. For whatever God's purposes are, right? Like whatever they are. You are set apart from the things of the world for the purposes of God. Now, just so you know, people are not the only thing that gets sanctified in the Bible, right? In the temple, what did they do? They sanctified all of the utensils that they used, bowls and uh, lavers and all of these different things. If you read through that section, which I know a lot of you have been doing your Bible studies in Leviticus and you're just loving it, you know, and that kind of thing. So um, in, in Leviticus, it talks about sanctifying those things, taking them from their common use on your dinner table and only using them for the purposes of God. That's a great way of thinking about yourself too. You're nothing more than a spoon, <laughs> a ladle, a bowl, a tool. I know that's used in a different way in our modern culture, but I think, I think that's actually probably pretty, pretty accurate. We are tools that God has set apart from their common use, and he has placed into his service for his purposes. And his purposes can be vast, so it would be very different for different people. Um, you should also, just as you're thinking about this, not just Leviticus where it says, Be holy for I am holy, but also think about what it says in First Peter where it repeats that from the Old Testament and says it extends into your conduct. It says in Matthew 5.48, what? Anybody know that verse? 
be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. I one time heard a sermon on why that's hyperbole and doesn't really mean what it means, or what it says, I'm sorry. It doesn't really mean what it says. I've got news for you. It means exactly what you're reading. (laughs) That's exactly what it means. This, This becomes problematic for us, doesn't it? If God demands holiness from us, and, and we are sinful, we've got a huge issue at hand. Press forward. What can mankind do to be holy and be part of God's people? Okay, obedience, good. Obedience to what? Good. You have to fulfill the law perfectly. Not just part of it, the whole of it. Look what it says in Leviticus. 18, verses uh, uh, 4 and 5. Follow my rules, keep my statutes, walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You know whenever the Lord is capitalized in your Bible, that's Yahweh. They use it. There's lots of different words for God and Lord uh, and, and that kind of thing, and those will be in lowercase. But when it's capitalized like that, in lower caps, it means Yahweh. The covenant name, the promised name that God had just with His people. It doesn't mean that Yahweh wasn't understood outside of the people of God. It means they understood the character of God. He had given them his character in his name. They used Yahweh before he said, I am that I am. But when he said that to them, he was revealing to them the character of love, mercy, and I've got too many bands on right now, but chesed, God's God's loving kindness that extends generation to generation. Uh, I have a tattoo to my wrist. I, just trust me. Um, and uh, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he lives by them, I am the Lord. Are you a follower of mine? Do what it says. Look what it says in the New Testament about it. For Moses writes about righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. You want to be measured by that? Go ahead. Go ahead, see how that goes for you, right? What is the moral condition, though, that is required of you? This is it. It's holiness. It's be holy for I am holy. It is what is required of me. I I, I must live by the law, and I must do it perfectly. I must do it flawlessly. I, I was just reading about... Aaron's children, Aaron the high priest's children who went in and offered a, it was called a fire offering. I don't even, I don't even know. I mean, to be, I, I studied all this stuff when I was in seminary. Like I had a chart of all the different potential like sacrifices you could make and all the different offerings. I, I couldn't even remember a fire offering. And so they went in and gave a fire offering to the Lord that they weren't supposed to. And it said that from the throne, from, from the ark of the, well, from the place where they made sacrifice, um, fire leapt out and burned both of them to death right there where they stood. Worshiping God was serious. Aaron had to walk in the next day and make sacrifices, and at the end of it, they, they said, why didn't you eat the food? And he says to Moses, are you serious? I just lost two sons. And it says, and Moses understood. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad he did. This worship of God was, it was to be done flawlessly. You didn't didn't make a mistake at all. There were were sacrifices 
for mistakenly doing something that you weren't supposed to do and you realized it and you made a sacrifice for the mistake that you made and then there were sacrifices for the mistakes that you didn't know you made. I, the, the, the law is so exacting. We fool ourselves into thinking that God doesn't care about the little stuff. But if you read, I think what you'll find is that he cares about every little tiny thing. What's the problem for mankind? What is our problem? I, I hear you whispering. Feel free to yell out. Yeah, we can't do it, right? Why not? Why can't we do it? Until we do, true. We're sinners, aren't we? We, we are stuck in sin. All men sin. We know Romans 3.23, a lot of us do. Um, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. By the way, I just want to pause here and, and note for you, um, just mentally, whenever the Bible talks about sin, like Christians have a reputation, don't they, of being like the sin police. We want to find people that are doing wrong things, and we want to sin police them. We want to make sure that they're get, you know, back into line and we're supposed to look out for our brother. We're supposed to judge within the community, all those kinds of things. And so we've gotten awfully good at that. I think it's funny when the church, when I hear church people that are super offended by the cancel culture that we live in. The church was the original cancel culture that I grew up in for decades before the rest of the world caught on, that you know, they could treat each other that way. The church has been brutal on each other. And, and I just want to point out something that I think is gracious. The reason that the New Testament writers bring up sin, they use it like a diving board so that you can leap into the pool of grace that they want to describe to you. Anywhere where sin is mentioned in the scriptures, it's just a diving board to say, but look at the grace of God. Look at how beautiful forgiveness and restoration is. Whenever sin is mentioned, it's there to kind of say, hey, if you've got these red flags in your life, you, 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 should, you should be alert. Uh, you're, you're getting away from what? The grace of God in your life. The good things that he has for you. That stuff will jack you up. I don't think we should be responding. What's your name? Luke. If Luke here... If I, if I find out that, that, that Luke, I don't know, had too much to drink last night, and this has been a habit in his life, and I'm sitting down with Luke, am I like, Luke, aren't you ashamed of yourself? Aren't, don't you feel horrible? About, of course he does. I'm, we're having this conversation, right? We're like, b believer in Jesus Christ, got conviction over those things. They, they, they might be trapped. You know what I'm going to be asking, Luke? Tell me what goes on in your life that, that, that's drawing you to drink. Tell me about the background. Tell me about the stuff underneath it. God is not in the business of just healing the outside cuts in our lives. Uh, you know, if, if, if you had a big old sore pop up from the inside of your body, would you just slap a Band-Aid on it? You'd go to the doctor and you'd have him do some blood work and figure out what's going on inside of you. That's exactly what Jesus does. That thing on the outside... It's simply there to tell you there's a problem. It's a flag. It's, a, it's an indicator. 
it's an opportunity for grace. We really do need to be men and women that understand that sin, God hates sin. But we also need to know that he solved it. He's not up in heaven going, oh, man, what do I do about Luke? Luke, why are you sinning? I did not see this coming. I don't know what to do. I'm I'm completely flabbergasted. God in heaven does not feel that way. God in heaven solved it. God in heaven has solved the problem of sin. Let's let's take these verses for what they really are, a springboard into the, the pool of grace. All men sin, fall short of the glory of God. Back a slide, thanks. Oh boy, look at this. Thank you, Nolan. Uh, And are born spiritually dead. Romans 5.12, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Jump forward to Ephesians. Uh, You were dead, we we know these verses fairly well, a lot of us. Um, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And that's just simply saying, this is the domain that Satan is is uh, the prince of. He's the prince of the power of the air. In other words, uh, the, the air that is above you that you can see, that's what they called the first heaven. He's the prince of everything that is circled by the air, which is where you live. <laughs> you live within that realm. And so following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, thank you, uh, among whom we all once lived in our passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Why is this here? Because you're going to get to verses 8 and 9 in a little bit. That's why it's there. Uh, he's speaking about these things because he's really trying to point out at one time, this is also true of you. Um, You were born spiritually dead. All men are born spiritually dead. Let's not get into a huge argument over original sin in a person's life and age of accountability and all those other kinds of like distracting conversations. The Bible fairly clearly says that all men are spiritually dead. So no matter what you think about sin and whether or not your little two-year-old could ever sin in their life, which I had two-year-olds and they sinned a lot, uh, but okay, so, you know, children are also precious and we love them and I'm not trying to, you know, send children to hell or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not trying to advocate for some kind of really narrow-minded view like that. Um, death, though, is the penalty for sin, physical and spiritual death. Spiritual death happens to your soul when you were conceived. You're born with a dead soul. Physical death comes later. Physical death is something that is it's, it's wearing you down. Uh, the, the things of this earth wear us down towards physical death. We think of death as being like a unified reality, and your spirit and your body are two different things. Your body is using your spirit right now. Um, your, your body uses your soul, or your soul uses your body, depending on which perspective you want to look at it, but you're, you're dead spiritually, and you will be dead physically someday. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know we use the bridge illustration for this, and I, I point out on, the, on the, um, the slide for this question, Genesis 2.17, what did God promise Adam and Eve if they ate of the fruit? 
Well, what did he promise Adam? If you eat of the fruit, you will surely die, right? Um, and then when Adam saw Eve eat the fruit, and she didn't just drop over, he's like, all right, we're doing this thing. Just went, went along with the voice of his wife, and he eats of the fruit as well. Man, ushering in spiritual death through the first Adam, right? Uh, Psalm 51.5, uh, that's the, the verse that says, uh, I was conceived in sin. I was, I was in sin from the time I was in my mother's womb. You got to be gracious with verses like that. It's part of the Psalms. That was a song. Not everything is literal in the wisdom literature. It's mostly true most of the time. And so I would stick to the things that are really, really clear. Like the beginning of Ephesians, right? You were dead. You were dead in your sins. That is, how, that is who you were. That is how you were born. That is how you came into this world. All right, moving forward. This is a problem, right? God's requirement for his people is holiness, and we're pretty much, we're pretty much jacked. It's certainly bad news. Is there any good news? Yes, there is good news. God sent his son, Jesus the Messiah, to substitute his holy life for your sinful life by making something called atonement. Atonement for sin. This is very good news, which the Bible calls the gospel, which coincidentally means good news. The original language is euangelion, angelion being the message, uh, the, the au part put on to the front of it to say this is the, the celebrated, the, the uh, venerated, the blessed message. This is the good news that we have to share. But, Nolan, one more, thank you. What does that mean though? What does it mean, that phrase, what does it mean that Jesus made atonement was that's a fancy sounding Bible phrase. What does that mean? He is our righteousness. Okay, that's good. That's that's certainly a component. Paid the price. Good. He was the sacrifice. So sacrifice is involved. He pay, he made a payment. Uh, we call it the propitiation. You heard one of the speakers in the video say that propitiation. For our sins, he made the payment. He satisfied the cost. Um, it uh, it delivers you righteousness. Um, and and what what else? What else does atonement mean? What does the word mean? What does the actual word mean? What does the actual word atonement mean in the Bible? It means covering. It's a it's a cover. The seat on the Ark of the Covenant that had the angels, that had the wings that pointed toward, that was a seat. That was the atonement seat. You sprinkled blood onto the atonement seat where God sat and, and extended forgiveness for sins to the people. And so atonement is this, is this concept, and it's very, very broad. All of the words of salvation are contained in the word atonement. Atonement is like a capstone word that... that it means justification, expiation. Uh, it means uh, it, it, it means every aspect of salvation that is available to us is involved in the atonement, the the, the payment, uh, the the wrath of God being satisfied. Uh, all of these things are included in this concept of atonement. Um, what what do we do with with this word to cover or 
or wash away. I think Leviticus 17.11, this is just, I want to encourage you, and I know some of you, I'm looking at you and you're like, oh my gosh, I've gone to school tonight. What happened? I'm tired. Um, look at Le- Le- Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Now let's pause there. Doesn't that just make sense? Like if you take the blood out of your body, what happens to you? Yeah, you die, right? So this is not rocket science. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And then God says to his people, I've given it to you on the altar so you can use the animal blood that I'm giving to you on the altar to make atonement, satisfaction, payment, forgiveness, all of those concepts. You can make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So if you sin, what's it going to cost? Blood. And what is blood? Life. And what does atonement do? It takes a life to save a life. This is like working with your children, those of you that have them, or those of you that have been around littles, and and you're teaching them like really, really like, you put this tinker toy, and it connects here, and then you do this, and then look, you built a bridge. Now you can take your matchbox car and drive it over the bridge. It's awesome. You know, he's taking little pieces, and he's piecing them together for us. Back up to that slide that talked about atonement just a little bit, Nolan. Thank you. means to cover, to wash away. We're covered by the blood that's on the atonement seat, which provides forgiveness for the people, and That forgiveness happened on a singular day of the year, and that day is called the Day of Atonement. Exactly, the Day of Atonement. It was an unblemished animal that was used as a substitute that would temporarily cover your sins. In fact, the Day of Atonement was even more dramatic. They had the unblemished animal, and then they had the two goats, and they sent the one goat out in the desert, and the other goat was sacrificed, and you know that's, called, that's what we call the scapegoat. It's like kind of a vivid picture in the Bible. Uh, God made this provision for sinful people so that they had a way to be in God's presence and so that they could be His people. And He mostly did it to foreshadow the sacrifice of Jesus. Everything that you read in Leviticus is about Jesus. Everything that you see there is, is about Him. All of the imagery, all of the meaning, all of the stuff, all of the depth of it, from the Passover to, to, to all of the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then extending into uh, the Day of Atonement, and all of, these, all of these things that the Israelites did, all of it is meant to simply illustrate the coming salvation that will come in Messiah. How did an Old Testament person become a Christian? By faith in who? Very good. By faith in the coming, in the promise, right? In the promise of the Messiah. Even Moses needed to have faith in order to be saved. He needed to have faith in the promise of God. He needed to have faith in the Messiah that was to come. It says in the New Testament that they looked onto the horizon and they groaned. They groaned wanting to see the Messiah. And we get to live in that generation that is after that, where we actually get to read about the Messiah and we know who the Messiah is and we get to celebrate in that. And, and, and they longed for it all the days of their life and never got to see it. And we 
We are that most favored generation that gets to experience the Messiah. And by the way, no generation in all of history has had the advantages that you and I do of being able to pop onto the internet. Can you imagine what Martin Luther could have done with the Protestant Reformation if he would have had the internet and a word processor? Uh, things would have gotten done a lot quicker. I mean, it, that would that have been fast, and it would have been it would have been quick, and we'd probably Christianity would probably be hundreds of years further forward. Um, I, I think of all the advantages I have: the Bible software that I use, the amount of time that I get to set aside for just studying the Word of God, all of these things. And I I feel I, I feel like embarrassed that I don't know more. I feel embarrassed that I don't that I'm that I'm not further along in my relationship with God. I mean, I, I feel like for thousands of years. People couldn't even read. They had, to, they, had, they had to send one guy out in the, in the, in the village and go, okay, well, you're the guy. You seem kind of smart. We're, you got to go get taught. You know, you figure out how to read and then come back and tell us all the stuff that we're missing. We live in a generation that is unbelievable, unbelievable access to the Word of God. Unbelievable what we have available to us. And so you might ask yourself this question. So are you telling me I need to go kill a goat or maybe my neighbor's a cat? Will that count? Uh, In order to have my sin covered or cleansed by God. No, no, please don't do that. Um, The animal sacrifice was just a temporary solution. Hebrews 10.4 says that the blood of goats and bulls, it was impossible for the blood of both bulls and goats to take away sin. In fact, he uses bulls and goats specifically because that's what went on in the Day of Atonement. That he wanted to make the, Paul wants to make sure, I'm going to the heart of this. He doesn't say pigeons. He doesn't say any other sacrifice that's out there. He's not talking about anything else. He's talking about the Day of Atonement. He says, you, you, you want to know the truth? It was impossible for an animal's blood to take away the sins of an individual. That could, those, those things could only cover it. It, it, it blocked it so that you could have a relationship with God. Go back to the previous slide. Thanks, Nolan. You're doing a great job. Until God sent his son, Christ, to be the perfect once-for-all, once-for-all time atoning sacrifice. In other words, what Jesus did is unique because he's a human being. He's fully human, fully God. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 14. Every priest stands daily to service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for all sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. And what does that communicate to us? Advocate, finished, what does it, what does it tell us about his sacrifice? It was sufficient. It was accepted, right? God accepted it because he's, he's seated in the throne room. God accepted it. When, when we see the resurrection, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the validation that what Jesus said and what Jesus did is true. We put a little too much celebrating onto it. I mean, we get a little, little outside of ourselves for Easter every year. We should get crazy about Good Friday. We should be just all about the blood. But we should also be pretty excited about, you know, Resurrection Sunday too. Okay. Tell all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet for, by a single offering. He is perfected or sanctified or made holy. That's the same word group. For all time, those who are being sanctified. So sanctified has a already done, happening right now, and you will be glorified someday. So it has a future aspect to it as well. Moving forward. 
If I'm spiritually dead because of my sins, how do I obtain this amazing substitution that Jesus is offering for my sinful life? What do you say? How do you do it? You believe, okay? That's certainly biblically accurate, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he sent his son, all those who believe, right? What does that mean, though? Because I think we probably, we probably, it does mean faith, that's good. We probably, we probably make this a little too simplistic for people, so I'm going to push you just a little bit. What does it mean to believe in God? Okay, so the work of Christ. We're, we're putting our faith into something, right? We're, we're not just dropping ourselves into the Grand Canyon of who knows what, and we just hope that he catches us. We are putting our faith in something very specific, the, the, the life and the work of Jesus Christ, right? That's, that's who we have faith in. So the, there's a, a step of faith that is involved because um, we do not see him, yet we love him, as it says in Peter. Uh, but it, there's also a sense of uh, your faith is not just blind. Your faith is informed. Your faith has reason. Your faith has substance to it. And so we, we believe, but how do you do that? You just like one day you wake up and you're like, you know, I kind of believe that stuff. Submission. So work that out, Ben, just a little bit. What do you mean by it? Okay, so giving, we give everything to him, and we're submitted to him. So it's really, it's really salvation by loyalty, isn't it? It's like we are, we are no longer loyal to the world. We are now loyal to, to Christ and to living as Christ did, because he shows us how to live a, a human life in relationship with God. He shows us what it looks like for someone who has no sin to, to have a relationship with God in heaven, and, and he says, and, and we are commanded to imitate him, right? Imitate him, because he was fully human, and I could go into Philippians, but I'm not going to. Some of you know that passage that, that talks about the, the specific, specifics of that, but I, I, uh, I do believe that it is, it's, it's salvation that comes by loyalty. It's salvation that has got some, some teeth to it. It's salvation that is... That is faithfulness in the Bible. It says, you, where am I? I'm ahead of my own self now. I did the same stinking thing. All right. John 3, 3, you must be born again. This is the regeneration. So you can stay on that main slide. I, I, I know these verses. Uh, John 3, 16 and 17, right? For God so loved the world. That's the first part. What's the second? What's 17 say? Right. But, but to save, right? And so the world's already under condemnation. There's, there's a message there for us, isn't there? Uh, that the world does not need to hear more about condemnation. Uh, the world needs to find out what the solution is to that condemnation. Uh, and, and if you trust your life to Christ, God would save them from spiritual death. There's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved, and that's, and that's the name of Jesus. He paid for your sins on the cross with his precious blood. Um, I should have put a verse there from 1 Peter didn't, but that's where that is located, uh, because 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, because he knew you couldn't pay the price yourself. So God, knowing that you are separated from him, knows that you cannot leap across the, the chasm that separates you. And so he makes the way. He, he goes to you. 
He chooses you. It says repeatedly in the scriptures that you are, you are chosen. You did not choose him. And, and yet I've been, to, I've been to some revival meetings where it just seems like if you just say this prayer or if you just come forward, you're a Christian. And they'll affirm that. They'll say, if you just come forward and you say a prayer, you're a Christian. And I'm pretty sure, I mean, I'm not trying to rail on anybody's church, trust me. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that's not true, though. But for one, it's not in the Bible. Like, you, you'll never see an altar call, really, in the Bible. Uh, and and you, don't, you don't see everybody, like, praying and having your, you know, when's your spiritual birthday kind of thing. Uh, it, there's something that is more submissive. There's something that is more loyalty. There's something that is more, I, I'm going to wear this, I'm going to live this, and I'm even going to be baptized publicly in front of other people, and I'm going to state to the entire world, I belong to Jesus, and I don't belong to this world. There's something that is, that is uh, there's, there's never a Christian that is not a disciple. Let me put it that way. But in our world, discipleship is like this higher level of, you know, if you want to be a disciple, come to this Bible study. That doesn't exist in the Bible. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple, you're in. Yes. Mm-hmm. Amen. Good. It is. It is an excellent. It's an excellent three-part method. There, there's some parts of this I want to ask you about, though. Go ahead. It is. It's. And so how, okay, if on the very first day you were saved by God, it required faith, nothing of yourself. It just required your faith, stepping into the message that you were given, all those stages that you talked about, you know, your head, your heart, your, your uh, volition, all these things, and you give yourself over to God. And we've all, we've all done stupid things. We've all sinned since we became Christians and, and those kinds of things, um, what, what do you do then? What do you do in that situation? What do you do? Like, what's the expectation? I guess, I guess that's probably my next question. Can you jump to that one, Nolan? You guys are tracking. So, it, yeah, I just, it really is that easy. It says in John 1, 12, right, to all who believe, to all who who believe in, in their heart, he has made a way. But when God takes hold, he really does change everything. Ephesians 2.10, for you are his workmanship. God is the master craftsman, and you are the beautiful, artistic, whatever in your world could be crafted by hand that you just are in awe of. That's what those verses are talking about. That's you to God. He's crafting you. It's beautiful. Um, God tells us, well, from the moment we become spiritually alive, God's spirit dwells inside of us and changes everything about us. Let's go to Titus, that should be Titus, 3, 4 through 8. 
The saint is trapped. Uh, could you back up one slide? The saint is trustworthy. Oh, no, one more forward. There. Oh, oh yeah, no, that's right. Is that right? Where? What's the next slide? Oh, this is completely out of whack, isn't it? Hold on. Handy dandy Bible. Titus chapter 3. The names go Thessalonians, Timothy, and then Titus. They go from longest to shortest. When I figured that out sometime in seminary, that helped me so much because you can usually bump into one of them. So if it's a long one, you go to the right for Titus. And if, it's, if you hit Titus and you're looking for Thessalonians, you know that's a longer name. So you go to the left. It's, it's just a handy-dandy little Bible thing. When the goodness and, and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in our own righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, there's the newness. That's the washing, right? That's an organic process. Uh, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, the seal, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, declared righteous. Not just said you're innocent, you're free of sin. You are given the righteousness of God. Totally. Like when we, when we don't convict somebody, we just say they're not guilty. When God does business with you, he says, no, you're righteous. When I look at you, I see Jesus' righteousness residing right there. You're justified by his grace that we might become heirs. You are family. You are adopted in according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So what's the expectation? Go forward now. Thank you. Do I have to go and be perfect? Now that I'm a Christ follower? Some of you are nodding yes, some of you are nodding no. So we're going we're gonna to chat. So you're saying yes. Both are true? Well, you, you can sin and you can, yeah, and you're perfect? Are we out of, we're out of tissue. Okay. My nose is, oh, fantastic. Hi, this, this is my wife. We have colds, so sorry about that. Um, so do I have to go and be perfect if I am a Christ follower? So if you look at it from one perspective, you'd say, yes, you do. You, you do. You have, to have the, you have to have the spirit of God. You have to have the spirit that, was, that indwelt Jesus. You have to have God in your life. Uh, and, and that means that you've accepted and, and you're living out that substitution. You've been made perfect. Uh, I love the Corinthians. The Corinthians are the biggest screw-ups in the whole Bible. They, they show up. I mean, <laughs> I have problems at my church. I've been there for a long, long time. Um, 30, I'm coming up on 30 years, including my youth ministry days there. And, um, and I have never seen people show up to communion drunk and walking by homeless people just blowing them off. And, and not paying any attention to them. But that was happening in the Corinthian church. You have a, you have a kid that, that is shacking up with his dad's wife, who's his stepmother, which I just read in Leviticus this morning, is explicitly forbidden in the law, by the way. Um, and so, like, you know, there's bad stuff happening in Corinth. And how does he address both books? The very first and second verse. Second verse of 1 Corinthians, first verse of 2 Corinthians, to the 
saints, to the holy ones. You are perfect in Christ, and you need to live up to, like you need to live into that. You need to, to lean into that, and that's why, we, that's why we have sanctification. It's the process. We, we, we do, and that comes from the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is what fuels all of those things. Uh, our fear of the Lord, our love of God, all of those things are fueled by the Spirit of God. Now, so are you supposed to be perfect? Yes, but that perfection is in Christ. That perfection is not, is not in you. However, that does not mean that you should let yourself off the hook. Because it's salvation by obedience, it's salvation by submission, it's salvation by loyalty. It's also, it's also um, and it is, of course, I should say this out loud, it's salvation by grace and grace alone, right? It is salvation by grace alone. And, and that salvation, your knowledge of God, your opportunity to receive the Lord, your opportunity to walk in God, your opportunity to sit here and hear about God, that's all been given to you. Like, you didn't do anything for any of it. You'd never know him um, if, you, if he did not reveal himself to you and to us. And so, yes, there is a perfection that is in Christ, but yes, that grace is what is, is absolutely what saves us. Go to that last big slide because it's 826. Some of you got kids in Huckleberry, and you still have to take them home tonight. So, um, so you're saying that even though I'm born in this world, completely spiritually dead, God has revealed himself to me through his son, Jesus Christ, so that I might experience spiritual rebirth by believing in Jesus, receiving the benefits of his atoning blood sacrifice, which makes me right with God, allows me to live in freedom from sin so that I might live out uh, a love of God for, for all God has done for me and, and for how amazing God is. And then after all that, I get to live in heaven forever with God. Yes, you are correct. But what do you do about sin? What do you do about habitual sin? What, what, okay, we repent, and repentance is, that sounds like a hard word, but it just simply means to turn away from sin and turn to Christ. It's um, the easiest and hardest thing to do in the world, right? Uh, you, yeah, you might need deliverance ministry, that is true. I certainly, certainly would agree with that. Sorry, I don't want to sniff into the mic. Um, what, what else? What do you do when you sin? You do, the, you do the thing you did the very first day. You confess. You repent. You trust in Him. And He's faithful and just and will forgive you for, for your sins, First John says. In fact, the Bible teaches us that to work out our salvation for the mature believer in Christ. Now, a lot of, you, a lot of the young people that are in the room are working with the junior hires, high schoolers, the wagon train kids. Uh, they, they get right with Christ when they come up here for camp, don't they? But you, you are adults. You are mature, uh, I'm trusting. And I, 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 believe that, uh, I believe that the message of Scripture says that every day for us is a return to the very first day of saying, Lord, I need your grace in my life to walk through this day. I need your mercies that are new every morning. I need to feel and experience your faithfulness. I need to return to the beginning like in a cycle. 
like in a regular rhythmic cycle of my life, I need to return to your grace constantly so that I can walk with you constantly. Obedience does not come from your human ability to be disciplined. That might enhance your obedience. Your obedience comes by the grace of God, which means you need to engage the grace of God on a daily, moment-by-moment sometimes basis. God has called you to be an example of a human being who lives in relationship with Him completely on the basis of grace alone. You could stack whatever you want on top of that. But at the end of the day, if you appear before Jesus, if you appear before the judgment of God, the great white throne judgment, all you've got is the grace of God. That's it. You got Jesus, you got nothing. Nothing else is going to matter in that moment. All that matters is Jesus and Esther and Joseph and all of those stories of redemption and reversal that we have looked at are nothing compared to what God has done in your life, compared to a a sinner being saved and, and walking in grace with Jesus. You are a miracle. Cling tightly. And when you leave the hill in a day, in in two days, in three days, cling tightly and wholly to the grace of God in your life. Let it be the thing that reforms you. I could go on and on and on about all the things we do to punish ourselves into following God, all the disciplines that we force ourselves into and all the craziness that we get into for the wrong motivations. Grace saved you. Grace changes you. Do you believe that? Good, because that's what, that's what really transforms a person is the grace of God. There's, there's more to say, but I get tomorrow to say it, so that's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of good. Uh, Father God, I pray that our time here uh, would be foundational, fruitful, that it would build into the, 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 the construction and the edifice of what you are doing in our lives as you build us up into your kingdom. God, uh, we want to be about your story, and we want to do so by grace. We want to do so by the grace that you've given us in your word, by the spirit, by the reminder of Jesus' words, and by the relationship that we have with God because of it. Father, we pray that you would extend and pour out your grace over us and that we would be drawn more deeply into our relationship with you, not by hostile hostile things, but by the wonder of your love and mercy, the wonder of your love and grace. In the name of Christ and all God's people said.